to Luke chapter 14. This is the time that we get to look into the Word, God, Word of God together. Uh, we're looking at verses 15 through 24 this morning. We started to look at this parable a couple weeks ago, and so we want to wrap up and finish these verses. We've been looking at the teachings of Jesus uh, since the beginning of chapter 14, while he's been in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees who had invited him over for a lunch, much like he had been invited back in Luke chapter 11. But most likely this was a a synagogue official who invited him over, or one who coordinated the Sabbath services for the synagogue. He was a high-ranking official. And yet they've been trying to trap him in something that he might say or that he might do. They tried to trip him up, so to speak. But instead, it's been Jesus who has been taking the entire, okay, entire occasion to teach on the nature of the kingdom of God. They invited him over to try to discredit him or, or hurt him in any way that they could, and yet Jesus Christ has been the one who has given them words of life. But one of the remarkable things that we've seen is how Jesus has actually been connecting future events with the here and now, from lessons on hypocrisy or pride, living in humility or extending mercy to the poor, crippled, lame, and the blind. None of this teaching has been in any way disconnected from between living for the future and living for today. Or in other words, how you view and live with future events before your mind and your heart will directly affect how you live for today, and vice versa. What you are doing, the decisions that you make, how you are living uh, today in the here and now will have a direct effect on your future. And how you view the future will dictate how you are living in the here and now. And that gives really a, a birth to a whole host of questions that all of us need to be asking uh, every morning and on a day-to-day basis. And that is, how am I living right now, and what impact will that have for eternity's sake? How am I to rise above those things that I see, and to live for those things that I can't see? Am I living my life with an eternal perspective, longing to glorify Christ, to extol His great name in whatever I do, or is this temporal world all that I can see and all that I'm living for. If right now is to count for forever, if time is something that you can never get back, if the Lord has allotted a, so many days on this earth for you to live here, are you living your days here on this earth to honor and glorify Jesus Christ? Or would you be ashamed at His second coming right now? Because having a heavenly mindset and living with eternity in constant view will have a greater and greater impact in how effectively you walk and you live out your Christian life today. And so, as Jesus has been speaking to these Pharisees, he's been trying to get them to understand that there is an eternity to be living for. And that the way that they are currently living is not conducive with them entering the kingdom of God. Hypocrisy in religion, spiritual pride, living for the exaltation of self and not showing mercy to your fellow man is in no way reflective of a a person who claims 
to know and to love God. And the parable that we are going to see makes Jesus' point to them abundantly clear. If there was any mistake about what Jesus was trying to teach them, it becomes very apparent at the end of this parable. And so I want to jump in and read these verses together so that we can have them on our hearts and minds and look at them in a little bit more detail. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to do so. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. God's holy and inspired Word says this, When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back, and he reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry, and he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We just pray that this morning we would look upon your holy scriptures and ask ourselves, what is here that I need to obey? What is here that I need to heed? Lord, we just pray that your word would instruct us, encourage us, and lift us up to greater heights in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these precious things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the single, if not the most terrifying truth in all of sacred scripture is the fact that it is entirely possible for you to wrap yourself up in the things of God from your childhood and into your adulthood, and then come to the end of your life and find yourself on the outside of the kingdom of God. Think about that for a moment. The most terrifying truth in all of sacred scripture is the fact that it is entirely possible for you to wrap yourself up in the things of God all of your life, die and then find yourself cast out of the presence of God for all of eternity. Maybe you've attended Sunday school as a youth and you've got attendance awards. Maybe you sang in your church choir or you even played on a praise team. Maybe you went on a missions trip or two. Maybe you attended small groups or regularly attended prayer meetings. 
Maybe you, you constantly gave to the church and missions. Maybe you read your Bible fairly regularly. Maybe you served your church in some capacity. Maybe you even preached a sermon or two. And you even did all of those things for your entire life, only to find out that when you die, you've missed out on heaven completely. Can you think of anything more horrific, more devastating, or more catastrophic in your life than closing your eyes for the last time in this world after doing all those things, and then only to open your eyes up again in the next and find that you didn't make it into heaven. But the Bible could not be any more clear that this is in fact the case. In Romans 3.20, it tells us, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Galatians 2.16, it tells us, No works of the law will ever save anyone. And Titus 3.5 goes even further, and it tells us that none, that's zero in the Greek, zilch, nada, none of our deeds ever done in righteousness will save us. Not one. No measure of moralistic reform, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of your church attendance, no amount of giving, no number of youth groups and youth events you've ever attended, no amount of service ever done for the church will ever save a single person in this world, and it never will. And you say, okay, preacher, what in the world is the the way. What then, how can I be just with God? How can I then stand one day before Almighty God in innocence so that He saves me? If God is absolutely pure and infinitely holy and nothing unholy will ever be allowed into His presence and He's perfectly just, what hope on earth do I have? The answer, you need the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes through faith in him. That's it. If you put your feet down and you try to take your stand on how many times you came to church or how much money you gave to missions or how many times you read your Bible, how many rituals and ceremonies that you've ever attended or anything else but what Christ has done for you as the means by which God should allow you into entrance into his kingdom, you are standing on dangerous ground and a foundation that will never, ever stand. Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever perfectly fulfilled all of the law's requirements and demands perfectly. And thus, he was perfectly righteous or morally pure or brought into what's called a moral conformity. And for you young ones, what that means is that word righteous, imagine a scale. When you put a 10-pound weight on one side, And on the other side, maybe you put 10 pounds of sugar on the other, and the scales will be even out and brought into conformity. Before coming to Christ, we were all measured up against the law, and the scales are off balance, and we are found wanting. But in order for you to be a partaker of that righteousness, or for your life to be brought back into the balance against the scales of God's holy law, 
In order for you to gain the benefits of His perfect righteousness, you have to put all of your faith and all of your confidence and all of your hopes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets all of your sin, and you get all of His righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the greatest change that separates Christianity from every other religion in this world. This is the difference between the religion of divine accomplishment and all the other religions in the world where human achievement reigns supreme. 2 Corinthians 5.21 lays out this exchange beautifully when Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when you put all of your faith in God and God alone, or Christ and Christ alone, not only does God take your mountain-high pile of sin, and He takes it and He separates it as far as the east is the west from you, and He casts it into the sea of forgetfulness, He declares you forgiven, and you look upon Christ as having perfectly appeased God's holy wrath against your sin, God will then look down upon you as complete and perfect, and full of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This righteousness coming through faith, this is what Paul was writing about in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. He says this, What is more, I consider everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them as garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Now listen to this very carefully. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And then there's a hyphen right there, and he goes on, just in case you don't misunderstand Paul. He says, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul realizes that his good works... His attendance or, uh, to rituals and ceremonies will never save him from sin. And that is, it is only faith and faith in Christ that will ever save him and give him the righteousness that he needs to stand blameless before Almighty God. Someone's going to have to help Paul tip those scales into perfect conformity. And the one who is going to do that is going to be God through Christ Jesus. It's the same one who can do it for you today. But that righteousness from God, it's it's not just a New Testament concept. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. I love how beautiful this is. Think about this. Isaiah 61.10, it says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. How beautiful is that? You were filthy. You were dirty. You were sinful. And yet God comes to you and he puts his garments out salvation. He declares you righteous and saved when you put your faith in him. He arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. When God gives you a robe of his righteousness and he places it upon you, you can be sure that it will never, ever fall off. And you can be sure that it will never, ever wear out. Jeremiah 23, 6 
The prophet says, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. God is the one who provides our righteousness. They even address God in prayer as the one alone who is righteous. Jehovah Sidkenu. Jehovah Sidkenu. That's T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U. Sidkenu. It means the Lord our righteousness. This is what John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, what he, what he wrote in his conversion in the book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And if you've ever read that book, it is just page upon page upon page of him wrestling with his faith and his sinfulness until at the very end he writes this. He says, quote, But one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And he goes on to say, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ seated at God's right hand. There I say as my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that he wants my righteousness, for that was just before him. I saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was in Christ Jesus Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. And I was loose from my afflictions and my irons, and my temptations also fled away. Beloved of God, this is great news for you today. This is glorious news. When you put all of your faith and all of your hope and all of your confidence in Christ Jesus, not only does God look down at you as if you've never, ever sinned, but he looks at you as perfectly righteous. He looks at you as one with Christ. He looks at you as one of his own dear beloved children. And he counts you as an heir to his eternal glory forever, forever. So how can you be righteous? How can you be just with God? And your answer is by faith and the righteousness of Christ. How can then I one day stand before Almighty God and look upon Him in the innocence that He looks upon me and He saves me? How can I do that? And your answer is by faith and the righteousness of Christ. If God is absolutely pure and infinitely holy and nothing unholy will ever be allowed into his presence and he's so perfectly just, what hope on earth do you have? And your answer is faith and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's all you have. Two weeks ago, I got a phone call from my brother in Florida. We went to the Shepherds Conference early March. March 31, he gets home. 42-year-old daughter diagnosed with cancer. 42. She's got three little kids. She just died two weeks ago. And the only thing I could tell him, the only thing I could tell him is Christ is the only hope we have. Christ is all we got. Christ is the only righteousness that we can have. 
And so we look at these Pharisees in our text this morning. This is exactly the diagnosis that Paul has of these Pharisees. They looked great on the outside. They were in the synagogue every time it was open. They read the Torah and the Mishnah pretty regularly. They thought their good works and their righteous deeds would get them into heaven. But listen to what Paul says of them in Romans chapter 10. He says, brothers and sisters... My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might, may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, and they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Beloved, that is you this morning if you are putting your faith in Jesus Christ. None of your good works will earn you into heaven. It is what Christ has done for you. And as we said at the beginning, one of the single, if not most terrifying truths in all of sacred scripture is the fact that it is entirely possible for you to wrap your things up in the things of God and then come to the end of your life and find yourself outside of the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees were the prime examples of it. They had made up their own complex rules and their laws and why, should, why God should allow them into, their, into his kingdom rather. They thought God should allow them into His presence on their terms. They didn't need God's righteousness. They had their own. But Jesus has been relentless in correcting these false assumptions. And it began after Jesus made mention that they would be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous back in 14. A man piped up in in verse 15 and says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now the typical response for someone, for a statement like that would have been this, O Lord, may we be among the righteous and be counted worthy to sit with men of renown on that great day. And everyone's looking at Jesus, and they're looking for him to respond, but instead he says to them, he goes, you know what, let me tell you a story. And he begins to tell them a parable. Now, we started to look at this a couple weeks ago, and so briefly, for the sake of those of you who may not have been here, there was an invitation to a great banquet. This wasn't just a time to eat, but this was a time to socialize as well. It was more than a meal, we said. It was a chance to spend some enjoyable time with the host and with his guests. And there would be this two-tiered invitation in, in order to give the host some time to make the necessary preparations. He would send out his servant to gather up all the RSVPs to get a head count. And then that way he knew exactly how many animals he had to butcher and process, how much bread to break, and so on and so forth. And so when everything was ready to go, the servant would go back out to those who had RSVP'd, and he would tell them, hey, everything is ready, the time is now to come. But in verse 18, it says that they all alike, one by one, began to make excuses as to why they could not come to the banquet. And we found that they were all kind of lame excuses and even insulting ones. The first guy says in verse 18 that he bought some land in the blind, and he just needed to go look at it and, and take a peek at it. 
And now, of course, no one ever did this because they wrote down every last detail of the borders and the contents of that land before a transaction was even made. And sometimes that might even take a year or two so that every square foot was accounted for. And so this was the first lame excuse. The second guy in verse 19, he says, you know what? I need to be excused because I bought uh, five yoke of oxen and I need to go try them out. And again, no one ever did this. No one ever bought five pairs of oxen in the blind ever without first making sure that they didn't have three legs and two heads and half a horn and whatever, right? If a man also was able to buy five yoke of oxen at that time, it suggests that he was probably fairly wealthy. And he could probably send out a servant to go take a look at them in his place. And so this was the second one that was a ridiculous excuse. Then the third guy, verse 20, he says, flat out, I cannot come. And he claims that he's got a wife. Now, perhaps he was appealing to Deuteronomy 24, 5, which exempted a newly married man from military service or for public duties for about a year. But Deuteronomy 24 didn't mean that he could never attend a civil function ever again in that time. And more than likely, if the host of the banquet was a gracious host, he more than likely would have said, hey, bring your wife. She would enjoy this banquet as well. But nonetheless, this is not a valid excuse for not coming to the banquet. And so the important thing, to take away from all of these refusals to come is that to accept the first invitation, but to decline the second was an unconscionable insult. It was unforgivable conduct that would be viewed as an intentional insult. Even in some parts of the Middle East, such a, a rude refusal, it would have constituted an act of war. To extend an invitation to a banquet was like extending the hand of friendship out to someone. And to reject that invitation was to say that you didn't want to have anything to do with that individual. And so, in other words, what Jesus is communicating here to these Pharisees and these religious leaders is that this is exactly what they are doing to him. They had received God's greatest first invitation through the prophecies and the revelation in the Old Testament. And so they were committed to come. They had received God's servant, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, and had come to invite them and summon them to the great banquet and tell them that everything is ready. And they were deliberately refusing to come to him by faith. They had other supposedly more important things to do and to attend to, things more valuable in their eyes that needed their personal attention. And there are many people that treat Jesus in the exact same way. They say, you know what? I'm going to come to the Lord in my time, on my terms. I've got too many things I've got to do right now. I've got my whole life ahead of me, and I'll just get to that Jesus thing sometime off in the future. But what business could be more important to attend to than the business of your soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? The answer is nothing. Even as believers, on a day-to-day basis, we make all sorts of excuses as to why we can't come and meet with Christ on a daily basis and commune with Him in prayer and through His Word. Alexander White 
A Scottish pastor once said, If you want to humble a Christian, ask him about his praying. And I would add, if you want to doubly humble a Christian, ask him about his intake of God's Word. Yet how little do we as believers treasure our time of private worship and communion with God? And we tell God the same thing. You know what? I'm too busy. I'll get to you later. I've got a TV program I've got to watch. I've got a social media status I've got to update and check. I've got all things to do that are far more important than learning about you and spending time with you, God. So what's this gracious host to do? Is he to throw away everything that's been prepared and, and cancel the banquet? Verse 21, it tells us the answer to that. And it says that the slave came back and he reported this to his master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now notice that the host of the banquet doesn't say, Oh well, suit yourself. But he's rightfully angry. His kindness has been spurned. His graciousness has been met with indifference. His generosity has been rejected. And so what's a kind gracious, generous host to do. He expands his guest list. He's going to invite the guests that he told the Pharisees that they should have invited back in verse 13. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. This wouldn't be just for religious leaders. People with those sorts of conditions would have been viewed as being under God's judgment. You must be poor or crippled or lame or blind because of some sin that you've committed, or maybe your parents committed. And so even more shocking than the ones who had been invited in the first place and had refused the second invitation would have been the fact that this guest list would have been expanded to all of these outcasts of society. People off the city streets. This is unthinkable. But this guest list, expanded guest list for the kingdom of God is prophesied in Isaiah 65 verse 1 which says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation which did not call on my name. And so who would invite such outcasts? Only a God of infinite mercy and a God of infinite grace. And so the slave comes back. This time he's got a bit of good news to his master in verses 22 and 23. He says, Master, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. So the master wants the the slave to go out even further down the social ladder. He wants those who live on the outside of the city walls and the city gates and the little makeshift huts and the shanty houses, even those that are in the hedges and the bushes where people don't even have a home. He's saying that he wants the dregs of society. He wants the undesirables. He wants the drug addicts. He wants the homeless people. He wants that guy that's driving around with the cat in the stroller that I keep seeing everywhere. Right? He wants that lady who's wearing her pink pajamas to Walmart. You know the one I'm talking about. He wants all of those people, the dregs that we look down upon sometimes. 
He wants anyone and everyone who will come and partake of his banquet who will come. And it says that the servant should compel them. This isn't an expression of force against resistance, but this is a loving persuasion because they would have been even more reluctant to come in than the poor that were inside the city. And this is really your and my job today. Notice this command, it doesn't get fully carried out in this parable. The Apostle Paul lays it out for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. He says that, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, in conclusion, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And we beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's our message. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are the ones who are extending the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are the ones who should be going into all the world, giving the gospel invitation to the great feast with God. We even sang it this morning, and and it doesn't ring true with you. It doesn't ring true. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the King? Who will be his helpers other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? Which one of you, who among us, will stand up and rise up and proclaim that sinners need to be reconciled to Christ? Are you on the Lord's side? It's one thing to sing it. It's another thing to live it. This is our job today. People are dying outside of Christ. We must be the ones that go out and compel them to come because the invitation still stands today, right now. Are you looking to have gospel conversations with your family members and your coworkers? Are you even praying for their salvation and pleading with God to open the eyes of their heart? When was the last time you offered up a prayer of salvation for the person that you considered as your enemy? You know, when Miriam and Aaron, they spoke against Moses in Number chapter 12. And they questioned, is Moses the only one who's speaking through God? And they badmouthed him because he had married this Ethiopian woman. And then God struck Miriam with leprosy for crying out against God's servant. But the first thing that Moses did, you know the first thing that he did? He prayed for Miriam. He prayed for her. He cried out to her and he prayed for her. Healer now, O God, I beseech thee. He didn't say, you know what? She got what's coming to her. He prayed for her. We must be the ones who are praying for those who harm us. And we must be the ones who are going out into the highways and the byways to share the gospel of Christ. And then lastly, Jesus boils it all down for the Pharisees. And he changes from a parable to talking in the first person. He says this in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Right at the end of the parable, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this is his banquet. 
Jesus is the host. He is the master of the invitations. And instead of experiencing God as a gracious host, those who reject his gracious invitation attempt to stand before him on their own righteousness will face him as a sovereign and holy judge and forever be shut out of heaven. The invitation still stands today. Do you have more important things to attend to? Jesus is still offering his salvation to all those who will come. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, come, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened under weight of sin, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you looking at your good works as the means of God looking at you and accepting you? Or are you depending upon faith in Christ and the righteousness that comes through him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that your word will not go forth void. So, Lord, I just pray that you would stir our hearts up for the gospel's sake. The world out there is perishing. Lord, set our hearts on fire to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Father, help us in this endeavor. Help us to look for those who are poor, lame, and blind and crippled. Help us to look for those who are hiding in the hedges. Father, we thank you for your gracious word. Let it nourish our souls and help us help it to conform us to the image of Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.